Good morning. I have been standing at the starter gate long enough. It's time to open the Word of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that our anchor is Christ. Our anchor is the Word of Christ. Father, we have come to delight ourselves in you this morning. To encourage one another in the faith. To stir up one another to love and good works. To live lives worthy of the gospel. Oh, the precious gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. So Father, we come to you humbly, yet boldly this morning. And we ask for assistance. I ask for your assistance, Father. Help me speak clearly. Help me speak with conviction and compassion. Father, help us. Help us listen attentively with expectation of transformation. Father, we ask all of this in the mighty, gracious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. By show of hands, how many of us have been subject to one or two or maybe a thousand cheesy icebreakers in our lives? Those awkward morning meetings at work, those kinds of things. The, the alphabet game, two truths and a lie, some sort of scavenger hunt. Aren't those just such a joy? Well, I actually like the game Desert Island. You know the gist of it. If you're stranded on a desert island and you had only one item with you, what would you choose? I have to say that through my vast knowledge of filmography, which is a joke to some of you who know me, I know that Tom Hanks got along with a volleyball for a while. I was hoping that joke would work. But I'm sure that some of us would choose something with a little more utility, right? I mean, Wilson was a good friend for a while, but we need something a little more to help us survive. Well, this morning, we're not playing the Desert Island game, so if you got excited when I said that, I'm sorry, I saw some head nods. Where maybe we'll do that after the service. We can meet out in the parking lot. But our text this morning presents to us a scenario in which the recipients are in a bit of a dangerous spot, a very dangerous spot. They're at a crossroads of needing to choose one direction over another in terms of what to believe, and also how they will live. And to that, as will be in 1 John this morning, John writes to these people to steer them in the right direction, to give them what is useful in terms of what, they will, what will help them as they find themselves stranded on a metaphorical desert island. So with that in mind, let us stand together, open up, if you would, to the book of 1 John. Chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18 through 28. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 28. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. 
Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. What, church? Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. This is the Word of God. Amen. Please be seated. Now, it's been several months since we were last in the book of 1 John. The first four sermons of this series can be found on our website and through our app, so check those out. But as a brief recap, and we have many new faces around here, just to give you a brief recap, John is writing to a group of people who are in the crosshairs of the enemy's attacks. Namely, there are those around John's flock tempting them to abandon the truth about Jesus' nature and Jesus' work. They had abandoned the truth that Jesus had indeed come in the flesh. And this abandonment had led, by way of implication throughout the entire letter, to a lifestyle of sinful entanglement with the world. Various desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, a self-seeking and self preserving pursuit and in order to live according to the flesh the false teachers had to abandon the truth and establish their own brand of reality which honestly is a false reality a very damnable reality while this is occurring John is winsomely and firmly pointing his audience back to the truth back to the realities of the gospel, the truth about Jesus' nature, the truth about Jesus' work. He exhorts his readers to remain tethered to the truth about fellowship with the Father and the Son and fellow believers. And with great precision, great pastoral care, he outlines the utter incompatibility of professing to know God while one's actions prove they vividly have nothing to do with him. 
He desires his audience to know the joy of the Lord, not in part, but in full, as they live blamelessly before the one who had called them out of darkness. He wants these dear followers of Christ to hold fast to the anchor of orthodoxy or right belief that they may follow through on the expectation of orthopraxy, right living, right belief, right living. And again, we find ourselves looking on the situation as John's audience deals with their current circumstances, which, as you read in verse 26 of chapter 2, there are those trying to deceive them, deceive them. In other words, he wants them to know how to live a godly life in the last hour. He wants to embolden his little children to be confident in the midst of adversity. And for us this morning, it really is my hope, my prayer, that this message moves us into a deeper resolve to live for the honor of God in a culture that aims daily to deceive us and abandoning what we know to be true. Does anyone need a message like that? Yes. Well, let us consider the text before us this morning. Let us consider together 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19. Follow along with me. Children, it is the last hour. As you have, res- as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. The first point I want us to understand this morning is that life in the last hour consists of responding to opposition. Life in the last hour consists of responding to opposition. He says, children, it is the last hour. What does he mean by the last hour? Well, if you look back before this pericope, starting in verse 18, we look at verse 17, which he says the world is passing away along with all of its desires. Now he says it is the last hour. And perhaps being so far removed from this time period, we would insert a bit of skepticism here, given that a couple thousand years, give or take, have elapsed since this letter was written. John, is the last hour coming or not? We're waiting. We've been waiting. What's going on? And there have been books after books after books after books written attempting to pinpoint the exact literal day of the Lord's return. But John is not worried about all that in this context. He is here thinking in theological categories, not chronological actualities. He's not trying to pinpoint the exact time of the Lord's return. In fact, to get so caught up in pinpointing the exact time of the return of Christ is to neglect Christ's very words that we find in Mark chapter 13, verses 32 through 33, which reads, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. 
So be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. And if we look at Mark 13 in context, and we zoom out from this very passage in Mark, you'll notice that the surrounding verses are very helpful in describing the sorts of things that will characterize this era. This includes the rise of false prophets, who's the rise of false Christ. These individuals will indeed make it their legacy to lead people astray from the faith. And so John is not interested in issuing a polemic on the finer points of eschatology. What he does mean by the phrase, the last hour, is that his recipients are living in such a time characterized by false teaching and false living, thus bearing the marks of what is said to take place toward the end of time. He goes on to tell his people that they have heard. They have heard. They've received this information in the past that Antichrist is coming. And so now many Antichrists have come. And much like John's non-interest in calculating and identifying the date and time of the return of Christ, he's not interested in putting specific names to the Antichrist or Antichrist. Who is the man of lawlessness that we read about in 2 Thessalonians? Who are those who do his bidding? When exactly will Jesus return? Now, I'm not saying it's sinful to ponder those things, though I will say that it is wrong if doing so occupies us to the point that we are not being watchful of the present, including the enemy's tactics, and they are subtle, to make us less effective for the kingdom and neglecting to walk in obedience concerning those things we know to be absolutely concrete. We can get so stuck in the weeds that we forget Jesus' command to keep watch, stay alert. And this word antichrist is very unique, very original to John's writings. It's used two times in verse 18 in your text. Once in verse 22. Once in chapter 4, verse 23, speaking of the spirit of the antichrist. And then it's used again in John's second letter in chapter 1, verse 7. The general idea here is to stand in opposition to Christ. Anti-Christ. To stand in opposition to Christ. That's what the letter's about. They know what Matthew and Mark and others have said about the representative of evil in the end. But what they need to recognize is that there is opposition to Christ at their front door. It's here. It's the last hour. So it's not John's intent to convey a systematic theology of the end times. Rather, he is saying there are many around you, even now, those opposing Christ who, as verse 26 tells us, are trying to deceive you. John is after action, response, 
let me just give this to you as an aside. When we come upon passages like this, it is very tempting to get stuck in the weeds while neglecting to look for the author's intent. I cannot tell you of how many men I know personally who get so tripped up by information overload and speculation whose lives don't validate a credible profession of faith. So it's not wrong to look into these things, to investigate, but we must keep our minds focused where Christ would have them. Stay alert. We're living in the last era. These things are characteristic of what's going on. There's deceit at your front door. Look with me at verse 19. We get here some more clarity about the false teachers. We'll call them the secessionists. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. We see in this verse that the secessionists have left the local fellowship. They're out doing their own thing. They're gone. But what is a secessionist? Well, it's someone who withdraws from commitment to a group for founded or at times, and in our context, unfounded reasons. In our passage, certain people had been with John's audience for a period of time. And now they've departed. Now, what exactly was it that caused them to leave? Well, in very narrow terms, it was the doctrine of Christ. They did not believe Jesus had come in the flesh. But broadly speaking, they departed because they had abandoned the truth. They had abandoned the word of God. No longer was it relevant to them. In fact, the word of God itself is exactly what was keeping them from indulging in the flesh. But it's not just that they've left and the church can breathe. Praise God, they've gone. It's not that. They're active. They're around. Verse 26 again, they are trying to deceive you. They are attempting to draw others away, to lead God's people away. And perhaps, just perhaps, it was beginning to work. Perhaps those left behind had adopted the mindset of Asaph in Psalm 73. You can turn there if you like. We'll read verse 3. Psalm 73, verse 3. Asaph looked out among his circumstances And he said, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Mm. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Perhaps these dear people were tempted to reason with themselves. Okay, I I know what we've heard. I know what we believe about Jesus, at least what I think we believe about Jesus, but they, they out there, they seem to be having a good time. Just look at the fun they're having. Is their approach really that bad? Why not just get a little taste of what they're after? 
Why not? Why not? By the way, if you keep reading in Psalm 73, Asaph comes to his senses. The text tells us that he goes into the sanctuary and he considers the things that he's wrestling with and he perceived the outcome of their way of life. And it wasn't. It wasn't good. Destruction. Destruction. And then he places his confidence in the Lord. No longer was he envious of the arrogant because he saw not the prosperity of the wicked, but the coming doom of the wicked. He puts his confidence back in the Lord. And you'll notice, back to 1 John now, you'll notice at the end of verse 19, such a great kindness of the Lord. It says, they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. That is a kindness of the Lord. Here is the hallmark of responding to opposition. Discernment. Discernment. Based on what you have received, my little children, and know to be true, don't give in to the opposition's bait However alluring it might appear, think deeply, think critically, it will become plain. We respond to opposition. We respond to opposition. This leads us to our next point. Life in the last hour consists of remembering the truth. Life in the last hour consists of remembering the truth truth. Look with me at verses 20 through 23. But you, and by the way, in the Greek, that you is emphatic. You, listen up, you. This is to give a contrast between the false teachers that we've just covered and the true disciples. That's them, but you, listen up, you have been anointed. By the Holy One and have knowledge. I write to you not because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And with his emphasis, turning that corner and saying, you, listen up. He plays this pastoral tough love card and he shoots straight with his people. He says, you know the truth. You have heard the gospel. You've responded to the gospel. You've repented of your sin, and you have trusted in Christ's atoning work to reconcile to you to the Father. But it may seem a little that John is even degrading his audience, being a little too overbearing. He says in verse 21, because no lie is of truth. No lie is of the truth. Well, thank you, Captain Obvious, right? That's pretty obvious. No lie is of the truth. Well, apparently not. Apparently not if these folks were being so tempted 
toward erroneous doctrine and application of it. We need these reminders. All this speaks to the deceitfulness of deceit. Perhaps they'd become a little callous in recognizing Satan as the father of lies and how he comes as an angel of light. If we're not careful, we will grow cold and we will grow soft in the same way. How many cartoons have you watched or sitcoms where the character or characters have had trouble stopping leaks in a boat? What do they do? Well, they plug one hole with a finger, put a hand over it, only to find that there's another leak somewhere else. And so they put a hand over there trying to stop that leak. And then what do they do? They're out of hand, so they use their foot, right? I can actually balance a little bit, all right? It's the stretchy pants. So they, they try to plug all of these holes. They're chasing themselves around and around, only to stop this leak and that leak. And at the end, what happens? The boat just sinks. It was inevitable. The boat just sinks. It floods and it sinks. Well, in theological terms, this is what John is concerned about. He's concerned about leaks in Christian thinking, leaks in Christian living. If we give the enemy an inch, you know the book, if you give a mouse a cookie? Well, if you give the enemy an inch, he will aim to take all we have. And this typically comes through the persuasion of false teaching. Matthew 24, 24 says this, For false Christ and false prophets will arise, coming from the lips of Jesus, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Denial of the truth about the Son and the Father leads to devastation in daily life. Denial of the truth about the Son and the Father leads to devastation in daily life. We need to understand this. Before we move on, I'd really like to kind of pull the car over here a little bit and deal with this phrase in verse 20 that says, You have been anointed by the Holy One. Look there with me. You have been anointed by the Holy One. Now, commentators are in complete solidarity here concerning the wordplay, as this phrase contrasts with what has already been said about the Antichrist. Both the terms anointing and Antichrist come from the same Greek verb, creo, which refers to oil being used to anoint someone for some intended purpose. We see this in the Old Testament namely in 1 Samuel chapter 16, in which David is anointed king. Verse 13 tells us, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Skipping ahead several books, we read this prediction about the Messiah in Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord... of The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, 
and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. So we have this idea in the Old Testament as we take it from the Old Testament into the New Testament. There are four uses of creo, all with reference to Christ. You can write these down if you're taking notes. Luke 4, 18. Acts 4, 27. Acts 10, 38. And Hebrews 1, 9. Luke 4.18, Acts 4.27, 10.38, Hebrews 1.9. This idea is also used by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.21 as a descriptor of believers. There we read these words. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us. And what John has in mind here is not a specific act or ritual of anointing with oil. But rather, what he has in mind is the reception of the truth and the Spirit's utility of that truth, the Word of God. In John 14, verse 26, we read these words. The Spirit of truth. The Spirit's utility of that truth. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. John 15, 26 tells us, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. John 16, 13 through 14 When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, because He has given us, excuse me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. And going from John's Gospel into 1 John, which we find ourselves this morning, chapter 4, verse 13 tells us, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So in essence, John is telling his people, his people, that what they are being tempted to believe cannot even compare to what actually is. The secessionist claim to have secret insight regarding the character and the functioning of God. But they, you, you have the spirit of truth residing in you, thus continually bringing to mind that which is true about Christ and that which is unsound. John is saying boldly what they claim to have in mystery, you have in actuality. What they claim to have in mystery, you have in actuality. John wants his readers to remember in the same way that Paul expected the Thessalonians to remember. This is 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel, truth, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. This is the truth that they are to remember. They are to respond to the opposition 
in such a way that remembers and upholds the power and the efficacy of the gospel. This leads us to another point this morning. Life in the last hour consists of remaining in the truth. Life in the last hour consists of remaining in the truth. Look with me, if you would, 1 John chapter 2, verses 24 through 27. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Church, say it. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, it is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. Here we have our imperative, our command, our call. Abide. Abide. Three times. Abide. The word just means to remain in, to not depart from something. In essence, John is saying that if your concern, if your true concern is relationship with God, then remain in what you know to be true. Don't swerve to the right. Don't swerve to the left of what you have received. And in verse 27, he makes a very peculiar claim here. He says the Spirit's application of truth to you means you don't need someone to educate you on this piece. He's not advocating for preaching to cease. We're not going to get rid of the pulpit. We're not going to stop. We will open the Word of God. We will teach it. We will preach it. He's not advocating for the elimination of Sunday school classes. He's not even advocating the elimination of private Bible study. That would contradict what we read in 2 Timothy 2, which says, What you have heard from me, Paul speaking to Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many times do we read in the gospel narratives about Jesus going to such and such a place and doing what? Teaching, right? The issue here is that John's audience is on the fence about which way to turn, what to do about responding to those who have gone out from them. So what does he do? He empties his spiritual arsenal. He fires off every weapon of logic, every weapon of faith to keep his people from erring, including the most obvious of the truths. He says, little children, there really are some things that are hard to understand, but this, this ain't one of them. This is not one of them. You don't need an advanced degree to comprehend what is going on here. You got this. John is working in the vein of perseverance. He says, if 
the truth abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and the Father. It's a pretty simple equation. He even states clearly that the anointing that they receive does indeed remain in them. It would appear that he is more confident of their position than they are. And so they have need of taking to heart his pastoral call to remain, to persevere, to endure through this difficult time to the end. I love the old hymn, Abide With Me. Anyone else like it? Listen to these words. Abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless. Oh, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What by thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like thyself my guide and stay can be through cloud, through sunshine. Oh, abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death, abide with me. What a prayer. What a prayer. And after reading these words by Henry Francis Light, I'd assumed that he had gone through a great time of persecution. Something that is very identifiable with what we we read about in 1 John. Well, that's not exactly the case. Certainly he went through a trial, though. It turns out he wrote these lyrics. There are many other stanzas. He wrote these lyrics after a long stint with tuberculosis and just literally days prior to his death. The song still remains helpful to us, given the context of 1 John. Just listen to these words again. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? There is no vacillation on the part of God's abiding presence with us. We are the ones who drift We are the ones who are prone to wander. We are the ones who tend to be easily led astray. And our gracious Lord knows this. For all throughout the pages of the New Testament, in the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, the author of Hebrews, James, Peter, they all make not just passing comments, but serious exhortations for God's people not to be led astray not to be deceived. And in Matthew 24, of which a portion has already been read to us, Jesus, think about this, Jesus is asked by his disciples about the timing, the very timing of the temple's destruction and the hour of his return and the end of the age. Does Jesus oblige in the moment? No. He sets their mind right He sets their heart on course. Here's his response. See that no one leads you astray. That was his response. Remain. 
abide. See that no one leads you astray. Guys, this is a big deal, and I hope you understand that. Our last point then this morning. Abiding in the last hour leads to confidence at Christ's return, not shame. Abiding in the last hour leads to confidence at Christ's return, not shame. Look with me, verse 28, 1 John chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Weary saints need the comfort and confidence only found in Christ. Amen? Weary saints need the comfort, the confidence only found in Christ. And Lord willing, in the next message to come in our series in 1 John, more will be said about confidence and shame. Uh, But for now, I just want you to take note of this progression. Abiding leads to confidence at the Lord's return. Abiding leads to confidence at the Lord's return. Our concern is not the when of his return, but rather the posture in which he will find us. Will he find us abiding in him? Or will he find us flirting with unfounded doctrine? Will he find us flirting with ungodly living? Will he find us tethered to the primary absolutes of the gospel? Or will he find us grazing in the fields of greed? One produces confidence, the other shame. We must abide in him. We'll say this. For some here this morning, the only thing, the only thing you need to focus on is what I'm about to say. Have I turned away from my sin and turned to Jesus, trusting him to forgive me of all my past and my present future transgressions. I fear that some this morning here have no business wrestling with this concept of abiding because you are dead in your transgressions, doomed to exist eternally away from the presence of Almighty God. That is your standing, your station in life. And if that is you, praise God that you are here This morning, you are surrounded by people who can answer the questions you have about the character, the work, the beauty, the majesty, the awesomeness of Jesus. So my prayer for you is that God would help you see your sin clearly. May he be merciful in helping you to feel the weight, the guilt, and the consequence of it. And then may he help you see the beauty of the cross. Oh, the blood. Oh, the blood. 
that washes filthy sinners clean, whiter than snow. Today could be the greatest day for someone here. And I pray that it would be. If the Lord can save a sinner like me, oh, if you only knew my backstory, oh, His grace, it abounds. It abounds. But this text and the application really is primarily intended for the believer this morning. And so to that end, I want to point you, believer, in a specific direction of application, really based on a short collection of text, 1 John not excluded. And I will just say this, before we read these texts, I know, well, at least to my knowledge, there is no one here at Providence Bible Fellowship attempting to go out from this fellowship and then remain active in trying to deceive us, those who are here, to abandon the doctrine of Christ. Okay? I don't know of a situation like that. I hope I never learn of a situation like that. But I assure you that this text is much more timely and necessary than we might realize given the spiritual temperature of our culture, given the spiritual temperature of the church global. In September of this year, a credible study projected that by the year 2070, Christians will make up less than half the U.S. population. The same study highlighted how many who profess Christ are switching to the category known as the nuns. N-O-N-E-S. The nuns. These individuals may embrace some Christian beliefs. They may even adhere to certain Christian practices. But in terms of religious identity, the name of Christ is becoming a growing embarrassment. In fact, the numbers are projected to rise from 30% to 52% within 50 years. That's a big shift. But God can crush those numbers. And I pray He does. I pray revival spreads like wildfire and many come to Christ. But just consider, consider these verses. 1 Timothy 4.1 Now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. 2 Peter 2.1 There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Jude 4 For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 3.18 For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. With these realities in mind, I believe we need to take two things, among many others, two things this morning, seriously. First, we need to be discerningly watchful. We need to be discerningly watchful. May it never be 
that some go out from us making it plain that they are not of us. May that never be. We don't need to be suspicious of everyone at all times, but we must be wise. We must be on guard. And as we're on guard, we need to take seriously the command to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Be discerningly watchful. Contend for the faith. And I am absolutely convinced that the best way we accomplish these two things is to get serious about the Word of God. Charles Spurgeon said of John Bunyan, if you cut him, he would bleed Scripture. Wow. Can that be said of us? I have this hanging in my office. If you want a copy, we'll send you a copy. Just not a frame, they're expensive. This is PBF's vision statement. We are God-centered, Bible-focused, gospel-driven church. We are Bible-focused because we are God-centered. God has revealed himself to us in his word. Yes, the Bible. God has declared that all scripture has been inspired by him and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that we may be complete, prepared for every good work. Therefore, the Bible drives our convictions, shapes our priorities, and directs our decisions. Amen? Now, in the spirit of a little one-upsmanship, I know that Pastor Greg led us in a Sunday school song last week, which was Zacchaeus was a wee little man. It was okay. It was okay. But I think we can do a little better. After all, I am typically the song leader here at Providence. So warm up the chords a little bit. Sing with me the B-I-B-L-E. You ready? The B-I. Yeah, take it. Yeah, please. Yeah. That. Amen. That should never. Listen, that should never, ever just be a kid's Sunday school song. That should be precious to us. May we bleed Scripture. May we bleed Scripture. If we think we know the Bible well, we don't. We need to humble ourselves. We need to read it time and time and time and time again. If in the future we think we have a firm grasp, we must humble ourselves and read it more to know it better, to know Christ better. Romans 11.33, oh, the depth of what? The riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Some of us need to dust off our Bibles and get serious about the Word of God. Before a time of reflection this morning, I want you to listen to an excerpt and just consider when this may have been written. Listen carefully. I'll read it slowly. I'm still learning the English language, so I'll try to make out most of the words. 
there is a general tendency to free thought and free inquiry in these latter days. Many like to prove their independence of judgments by believing novelties. There's a widespread desire to appear charitable and liberal-minded. Many seem half ashamed of saying that anybody can be in the wrong. There's a quantity of half-truth taught by the modern false teachers. They are incessantly using scriptural terms and phrases in an unscriptural sense. There is a morbid craving in the public mind for a more sensuous, ceremonial, sensational, showy worship. Men are impatient of inward, invisible heart work. There is a silly readiness in every direction to believe everybody who talks cleverly, lovingly, and earnestly. And a determination to forget that Satan is often transformed into an angel of light. There is a widespread gullibility among professing Christians. What is the best safeguard against false doctrine? I answer in one word. The Bible. Just two words. The Bible often read. The Bible often prayed. The Bible often studied. A Bible-reading laity is the strength of a church. So, when was this written? Sounds like something just released by Al Mohler at Southern, doesn't it? I promise you, I did not pick it up from the briefing. This was written in the 18th century by J.C. Ryle. I think it describes perfectly the spirit of the age. Folks, we are living in the last hour. And I think this provides what we need to consider. And may this be so of us. A Bible-reading laity is the strength of the church. Let's pray. Father, over the next few moments, we will sit in silence reflecting on the things that we've heard. We praise you for your glorious word of truth. Pray that your spirit would work it into our hearts as we contemplate how we will respond to this message. Father, help us truly resolve to live for your glory, namely by treasuring your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Father, give us wisdom in responding to opposition. Cause us to remember the staple doctrines of our faith. Oh, and give us grace. Give us grace to abide in you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.